Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Hello, and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Today on the show, after reports that Liz Truss cost the UK £30 billion, that's £68 million per day of her premiership, Jeremy Hunt is about to present his autumn statement. Is it anything more than austerity redux? Plus, the future of the left, now that many no longer see the Labour Party as its home. Writer and activist Michael Chesham joins us to discuss his new book, This Is Only the Beginning. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, The Age of Gerontocracy, Why Are So Many Old Men Running the World? Let's meet the panel. First up, commentator Alex Andre. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Podcast fave Suella Braverman has struck <laughs> a new deal with France to try and curb migrant crossings. What is it? What difference do you think it will make? Will it make things any better for the migrants? Yes, a little bit. The more important aspect of it is the mood music around it. It seems to signal a kind of resetting of the relationship from the dark days of the jury's out on whether France is friend or foe, to a, a more uh, entente cordiale, basically. Um, what is in the deal is that UK officials will now be stationed with their French counterparts, which that happens for the same, for the first time. There, there will be an uptick in the amount of patrols on the French side uh, of the channel. That is a, a change. There's no deal on returning people, no deal on safe routes, and no deal on detaining people, which is quite a big sort of open debate between the UK and France, because the UK's complaint is that even when they catch people trying to um, get in a boat, they don't then detain them. They just set them free and they try the next day. Um, so, it's important because it's a it's a cooling of temperature between the two nations, and that can't be overstated, actually. That's why people like Natalie Elphick absolutely hate it. And it's a shrewd political move, I think, because crossings always plummet in the winter. And so Sunak knows the numbers will go down, and so he can use the next six months to build a narrative of, look, we're doing something, it's getting better. But that by the time it gets to next summer, unless numbers are hugely bigger than this year, I think that narrative can survive. So it's quite a shrewd political move, but not much in there for the people actually mm. trying to get across. Uh, Yasmin Sahan is a staff writer at Time. Hi, Yasmin. Hello. Uh, Tuesday night, Donald Trump finally announced that he'd be running again in 2024, but it felt a bit anticlimactic, uh, considering that almost all his favoured candidates lost in the midterm elections, and his chief rival, Ron DeSantis, was re-elected as governor of Florida in a landslide. Now, he won the nomination in 2016, largely because his opponents were divided. Do you expect uh, a head-to-head -head with DeSantis this time? Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> it's it's hard to predict things two years out. Um, we're just coming right off the back of the midterms, which I think partially explains why there, there seems to be so little fanfare over, over Trump's announcement. I mean, Republicans are perhaps quite understandably probably not feeling all too great, having uh, vastly underperformed what polls said they would be able to do. As for the, the future of Trump and whether he can excite his, his supporters and more importantly, his Republican colleagues um, enough to prevent a challenge uh, from within, um, I, I think really remains to be seen. I mean, I think we know why he chose to announce his candidacy so early. He wanted to make sure that he took up the space and immediately appeared as the front runner. Um, obviously, if he announces now, it makes it quite difficult um, for someone like DeSantis to immediately or to challenge him. Um, 
I haven't followed DeSantis as closely, but I would be very surprised if he made any sort of mumblings about a presidential run now, because he quite literally a week ago just won re-election uh, for, for his governorship. So I, I think it would probably be inappropriate for him to start looking to the next thing. Um, that said, I, I think that potential race between him and Trump is something to watch. I mean, I think Trump has called him, you know, Trump, as we know, assigns some sort of nickname to all of his enemies. I think uh, Ron DeSanctimonious is his, uh, which I, I will give him credit, is quite catchy. Um, I bet. <laughs> but um, I, I think, you know, as my colleague Molly Ball writes, the one sort of advantage that Trump has over his rivals is his army, you know, that hardcore base uh, that would follow him to the ends of the earth. The question, though, is is whether that army is going to hold. And indeed, the polls that we've seen, uh, the, the new polls that we've seen so far have actually showed Trump trailing DeSantis. Um, and indeed, one poll found that 67% of all voters, including 40% of Republicans, think that he shouldn't run. Uh, Trump clearly didn't get that memo before. You know, he's he's made, the message clearly is he wants to make America great again, again. Um but I don't know if that sort of same campaign style is going to work this time around, especially um, because, you know, it, it didn't go so well the last time. Well, this is it because we've got four years of Trump to look at now. So when he's sort of promising to restore American glory or whatever, it's like, you know, to the glory of 2020, um, which, of course, you know, ends with the uh, with the storming of the Capitol. And some of the media reactions were extremely snarky. I mean, NPR framed it, you know, in terms of, all the anti-democratic things he did, New York Post stuck it on page whatever, you know, deep, deep inside and just described him as a sort of, you know, as a golfer. Um, <laughs> in a very, so it seems as if the it seems as if the media is going to be smarter this time. Plus, of course, people will be able to throw his record at him. So, I mean, is he, you talk about this army and people say, obviously, name recognition and, and former president, but it seems like it's going to be a lot harder this time. I think it is a lot harder. I think he's trying to retake a test that he's already failed. And, and you mentioned January 6th. I mean, we didn't even have, we had, of course, all the election den denialism during 2020, but you take into account that legacy and I think it makes his job a lot harder. But look, I think the media needs to make sure not to obsess over him, especially mm. more so than other prospective candidates. That, that may be coming down the track. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the media has to really think hard about the coverage of Trump in 2016, the coverage of Trump in 2020, mm -hmm. and, and crucially how it goes into the next two years where he's really going to want to, you know, obviously be in our faces uh, running up to 2024. Okay, we'll try not to talk about him too much. <laughs> Uh, today's guest is a seasoned activist with a background in the student movement, momentum, and another Europe is possible. He's also the author of a new book, This is Only the Beginning, The Making of a New Left from Anti-Austerity to the Fall of Corbyn. Michael Chesson, welcome. Hello, great to be here. You write about unions in the book. Nurses in England and Wales are being offered a 4% pay rise. They've asked for 17 and a half. Um, strikes are in the offing. How healthy is the union movement overall at the moment? Well, it's certainly true it's gearing up, um, and I think we are likely to see a great deal of industrial militancy in the next few months, um, led, of course, initially by the RMT, then the CWU. Uh, we're now moving into um, sort of a situation where uh, the PCS has a, has a positive ballot, the RCN has a positive ballot, uh, Unison and other health unions are going to announce positive ballots quite soon. You've got the NEU that will announce in January. You've also got the BMA coming out in January. So you can hear the rumble of cavalry in the distance from, from what was a relatively strong start over the summer uh, with the RMT. So I think it's healthy in a sense, in the sense that there is a huge amount of public support. But I think there are some underlying weaknesses, obviously. Uh, trade union density in Britain is still really relatively low. We've gone through a decade where the left came back as a political force, uh, but that didn't translate into trade union militancy. And, you know, you look back at the Corbyn years and and actually um, at the same time that the, the left was coming back politically, say 2017, 2018, these are kind of high watermark of Corbynism, um, were the low, those two years were the lowest on record in mm. terms of uh, the number of days lost to strike action. So, so you've got 
relatively low density in in some bits of the uh, in some bits of the workforce relatively low organization but a very very strong mood and you can really feel that mood anybody who works in trade union who's a trade union rep will tell you that uh, that there are workers out there you know especially nurses i mean in the nhs uh, who basically would never have considered going on strike before, who are now coming out. And they are they are beating what is an incredibly restrictive uh, legal regime. So, I mean, in order to get a positive ballot in the UK, you've got to get 50% turnout. In many industries, key industries, got to get more than 40% of the whole membership voting yes. So, I mean, it's incredibly restrictive strike legislation. And by and large, I mean, there are bits of the trade union movement where they're not beating that. But by and large, there are a lot of unions that are beating that very, very mm. high hurdle, which really shows you kind of how, how strong the feeling is. Mm, more on that later. Before we begin, uh, a quick plug for Origin Story, my podcast with Ian Dunt about the history of the political phrases and ideas that we fight about. Season two is out now, starting with a deep dive into the life, work and legacy of thorny libertarian icon Ayn Rand. Ian and I try to work out how she became the most politically influential and controversial novelist of the 20th century. Next week, we'll be talking about culture war, but our Patreon backers can get every episode a week early without ads and all that jazz. Um, we put a lot into it. I hope you like it. I'm a big, big fan of uh, of series two. I mean, I liked series one, but that Rand episode, I thought was off the scale. Well done to you. And well done to you for managing to promote it on the podcast. <laughs> the most uncomfortable. I think you'd rather get naked in this booth than toot your own horn. <laughs> well, nonetheless, I, I, I fought my way through the, the trauma of self-publicity. <laughs> no, it's tremendous. I recommend it to everyone. Thanks, Alex. First up, with Jeremy Hunt about to make his autumn statement on Thursday, what cut should we expect? What justification is there? And is there any hope to be had? Um, Alex, the Tories have gone from the sunlit uplands to the dimly lit lowlands. Um, why is Hunt so sort of unafraid of, of bleak framing? Because uh, he needs to. Uh, I mean, if you, if you ask yourself the question, what is the one thing they want to avoid with this budget? It's a negative market reaction. Okay, so, so part of it is... Ma expectation management. Your rhetoric before the budget is utterly bleak. If you get markets to price in the worst case scenario, then the budget can come out and actually be 10% less bad than they expected, and you get a little uptick. The second element is that things are bleak, you know. Um, the the Quarteng Trust fiasco has cost us 30 billion. I mean, that's a conservative estimate, by the way. I know that's a figure being touted around. But we will be paying that idiot premium for many years to come. And the other element is that the chancellor has to go a lot further than a chancellor would have to go four months ago just to reassure the markets. Uh, can you sum up what we know so far in terms of cuts and tax rises? I mean, without obviously doing like a, a point by point. Yeah, we, I mean, look, we don't know much about individual measures because they've been quite tight-lipped, but we do know, um, so uh, Hunt on Sunday told Sophie Ridge, we are going to be paying a bit more tax. Um, they talk about compassion, they talk about, you know, being fair. So that's the gist of it. The taxes will go up for everyone. There will be an attempt at fairness, however Tories define that. But we know that the 60 billion shortfall will be covered by 25 billion in tax increases and 35 billion in cuts. So they're leaning into cutting stuff, which is a catastrophic mistake, in my view. But have they caved in on, on raising benefits in line with inflation? We don't know specifically. Right. Um, my instinct, if you want it, is that they'll come in somewhere between the two. So they'll come in above the 5% that was originally going to be the case, but it's not going to be anywhere near inflation. They'll come in at about 7.5% to say, look, we're trying. It's all incredibly inadequate and it's all economically illiterate because the, the whole point is that someone, the richest household, someone on the highest income can lose 10, 15, 20% of their income without batting an eyelid. But someone on universal credit cannot lose 1% of their income. They will feel it. And so that's the, you know, that's the, the mis-selling of it, obviously, that it's somehow fair to tax the rich 10% and the poor 1%, but actually the poor can't afford that 1%. I think you'll find that rich people bat 
bat eyelids very fiercely when anyone tries to take away any of their money. But I get your point. Michael, the Tories, uh, as you describe in your book, um, very much got away with austerity politically um, at the beginning of the last decade. Do you think they can get away with it again? I think a lot depends on what Labour does. And I think if I was Rishi Sunak, I'd be thinking two things. One is, you know, how did I become Rishi Sunak? <laughs> I mean, I say it's, uh, I mean, look, look, you could you could ask that of almost anyone on the front bench of the Tory. I mean, really. But I mean, on the one hand, probably no matter what he does, he's only got a few years of this. So from a Tory perspective, how much damage can you do? You know, how much... Um, how can you take money out of the state and restructure the state as much as possible in such a way that Labour either won't bother or can't push back very easily uh, once it takes over? That's one thing. The second thing is, in order to have any hope, I think they've got to be able to create a new austerity consensus. And I think Sunak probably will be trying to calibrate this autumn statement and his general sort of fiscal regime in such a way that he can drag Labour with him. He's banking on Keir Starmer making essentially the same mistake as Ed Miliband did. Because if you go along with the austerity consensus, then actually what happens is that firstly, the public become demoralised and regard cuts as necessary. And oh, you know, we've all got to tighten our belts. And you shift the terrain of debate onto fiscal responsibility and who can be trusted with the economy. And if you're a Tory strategist, you know that on average, in any given poll, the, the, the Tories will poll uh, well uh, on that. So a lot depends on what Labour on what Labour does now. And I think you, we're not hearing great noises out of the Labour Party in terms of taking a very clear anti-austerity line. Um, Should we resist the idea of the fiscal black hole, the phrase of the moment, which seems to me, which reminds me a little bit of the kind of kitchen table accounting justification for austerity first time round, that it seems like it's something that's real and scary and must be fixed and therefore gives austerity a kind of inevitability. It only bears scrutiny if you basically say we are going to retain the status quo uh, in pretty much every single way. Uh, then you can plausibly argue with some creative accounting that there's this black hole and we've got to do austerity. But I mean, I mean, look, there are lots of other options. There are so many other options here. Britain's billionaires have never been so wealthy. I mean, the, the mm. collective wealth of Britain's billionaires is I mean, something like 650 billion. I, think. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary figure. Uh, a wealth tax on the 1%. Uh, there's research showing that that would raise, what, 70 to 130 billion. So, I mean... It, 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 there are choices. There are there are there are very obvious choices, and, but but the choice that the, that the Tories are going to make is exactly what they did last decade, which is you know a, a real humanitarian crime. I mean, you look at what austerity was in the last decade. You know, infant mortality uh, goes up after a century of continuously falling. You know, life expectancy stagnates, goes down uh, in some areas. Uh, you've got to this. I mean, you know, Glasgow University did a, a study and they found that the last decade of austerity basically resulted directly in 335,000 excess um, deaths. What can we learn from the anti-austerity movement during the, the Cameron Osborne years? An awful lot and, and an awful lot from different perspectives. I think the first thing for for, for politicians, if, if Keir Starmer is listening to this and I, I you know, we, we can only hope. Um, <laughs> All the time. Yeah. You, you cannot beat the Tories if they establish an austerity consensus. You have to be able to say there is an alternative and we can do things differently. And I think there is a real danger that Labour will will do that again. As I say, that demoralises the population. It also demoralises uh, the movement that goes on outside. The, the other thing that we need to do is create a, a, a kind of mass resistance to uh, to the politics of austerity in the country. You're beginning to see that with the unions. The question, as I say, is, is, is can that be matched by a broader social movement that can, can mobilise more broadly across society? Um, Yasmin, when you, when you look at um, the noises that Hunt is making about this statement, is it overwhelmingly driven by the need to reassure the markets and sort of patch up the damage? I think that's certainly a big part of it. The 40-odd days of the trust courting government um, was, was really disastrous, I think, in, in terms of Britain's uh, perception internationally in the markets, but but also amongst allies. So for, for this uh, autumn fiscal statement, I think 
there is a real desire to reaffirm for the markets that the grown-ups are back in the room, the grown-ups are back in charge, and they're going to make difficult decisions that make you know fiscal sense. Um, I think the problem is, and you know, speaking to some economists for this today, is that there is a big risk for overcorrection here, which is to say. Um, and I think that's the risk that, you know, as everyone here was outlining, the, the so-called fiscal hole is not so much a thing, but kind of a, a creation of this idea. And and yeah, I mean, I think it is it, it is probably driving that. That's certainly something that I think would be on their minds. Because we're told that all departments will have to freeze spending and public spending overall will rise by just one percent a year from 2025. Um, so that's a that's a, a tight few years. I mean, apart from, like I said, the humanitarian crisis that that can produce. But when you buy overcorrection, do you mean that's also therefore a recipe for recession? You're you're doing it to tackle inflation and then you end up just in another hole. Exactly. Yeah. You trade one hole for another. Um, and I, I think some economists would, of course, argue that we're already in a recession. But those same people would probably say that cutting spending at this precise moment is bound to only make things worse. You know, that it's it's effectively a recipe for torpedoing future growth. Um, Ian Duncan Smith said that tax rises could deepen a recession and Tories should focus on growth, which is a very Trussite word, although he only said it once. Um, how much resistance do you think that Sunak and Hunt will face from from backbenchers? I mean, it'd be, it'd be quite weird for us to be looking at allies on the Trussite right. But do you think that this is going to, um, how do you think this is going to go down with the party? Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see. I think it's going to be a real test of whether Sunak has actually managed to, you know, unify the party enough at least to sort of get this through. I mean, look, public spending cuts are, are never going to be popular, not least among the public and, and among Tory MPs who are going to have to answer to that public. So I think it's, you know, kind of hard to make the case for, you know, build back better um, when, when you're actually having to cut back. I think it'll be a test to see whether the sort of Tory faithful have accepted the narrative that this is something that has to be done. Alex, I suppose the difference in this austerity is that before the justification was was deficit reduction. Now the justification is is fighting inflation. Mm. Remind us, why does austerity not work? Okay, so, I mean, imagine two taps running into a barrel and one is private demand and the other is public demand. And when the the tap of private demand begins to trickle, begins to slow down, then the Hayekian instinct would be to immediately stop spending so much money because the economy is shrinking, so you take in less money. The Keynesian instinct, which is the correct instinct, as the last decade has proved quite conclusively, is to turn up the volume of the state tap so that the barrel doesn't run dry. In a sovereign state with its own fiat currency and its own central bank, your your aim is not to conserve money. Your aim is for the barrel not to dry out. Um, Richard Murphy put it really, really well when he said that we have to get out of the mind frame of thinking of it as um, tax and spend. It's not tax and spend. Our economy works as spend then tax. So we decide what we want the envelope to contain and then we look for the ways to find it. So we hear a lot about this fiscal hole, but it's not a fiscal hole. What it is is a credibility hole. That's what Truss and Quarting have created. And it could be addressed in any manner of plans from progressive to regressive, as long as they're credible. So saying this is the only credible plan is just not true. Actually, austerity is largely discredited after the last 10 years. A more progressive plan, provided they've done their sums and they know what they're spending where and why, is equally credible, if not more so. Um, Michael, you you talked about the sort of um, maybe unpromising noises from Labour on this so far. You wrote a piece of The Guardian uh, a year ago saying that Labour would, would crash and burn with Starmer without more radical policies. Now he's, you know, 25 points ahead. Are you surprised that Labour is doing so well or do you still feel that there is a kind of, there is a fragility to that lead? Has it changed your diagnosis of what they need to do, let's say just on pure electability grounds? Well, did I foresee that Labour would be 25 points ahead? I mean, no, neither did I foresee that um, 
the Tories would just hurl dynamite at each other. For, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> who did? I mean, I mean you know, it's, I mean, look, clearly Labour is it should be nailed on to win the next election. Um, does that vindicate um, Keir Starmer's invertebrate strategy? Um, I would argue no. I don't think that Labour is ahead because it has simply, you know, failed to support pay rise, failed to support the nationalisation of, of energy, uh, failed to kind of, well, deliver on really anything that Keir Starmer promised to do in his leadership campaign. Um, no, evidently. I think if he was doing that and, enact, and, and enacting something more like Jeremy Corbyn's um, kind of domestic programme, I think Labour would be would have a, a larger and probably also a more solid lead. I think that the way that Keir Starmer is doing this, um, well, firstly, he's squandering a great opportunity. You could get a mandate for a very radical agenda that could set the tone for decades to come in government. Um, Keir Starmer has the power to do that. Um, setting an agenda is not a goal, though. Well, it is. I, I mean, it's an, set, it's, an, it's only an opportunity if you get in. Yeah, I mean, which Labour now, you know, almost certainly will. I think one of the very few ways back for uh, Sunak now is the establishment of this austerity consensus and this replay of the 2015 mm. election. And yeah, as I say, I, I think the real, the real danger here for Keir Starmer is allowing Sunak to set the political agenda. And you see this again and again and again. I mean, it's not just on the economy where I think, you know, Labour, you know, condemns strikes, um, is kind of trailing Tory rhetoric on austerity already. You can kind of already hear that coming out in, in interviews from the front bench. Uh, that's a huge mistake. But I mean, it's also on stuff like immigration and on Brexit. I mean, you know, really you are seeing under, I mean, look, I was a, a dissident Corbynite. I was, uh, you know, a, uh, an anti-Brexit, the anti-Brexit the le- wing of the left and criticised Corbyn day in, day out for not taking a stronger stance on Brexit and not taking a stronger stance in favour of free movement. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's position on all of those things is a is a shining beacon in comparison. Part of me also listening to a, a lot of the conversations so far, I was thinking, yeah, the grown-ups are back in town. The grown-ups are idiots. I mean, like the grown-ups, the grown-ups laid the ground for Trump and Brexit. I mean, the reason why these things happened was because there was no ideological alternative to a lot of drip-fed poison that was being fed into communities by the tabloid press for a long time about immigrants. There was no economic narrative of economic alternative. And so the far right picked up the stick. So yeah, I I think that's a huge problem. And I think unless Labour does something, then yeah, okay, look, it's probably going to win the next election anyway. But that doesn't necessarily mean it vindicates its strategy. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in but your emails. Remember, you can sign up to ask one yourself. Alex Lockie asks, given sufficient billions of dollars to buy a company on a whim, what would the team buy and what would they do with their new toy? For example, buying the Daily Mail and turning it into a joyful pro-rejoined celebrator of diversity. <laughs> uh, Alex. Um, so if money were no object, I, I think I'd buy back railways, water, electricity, <laughs> gas, the post office. And I would offer it to a Labour government only for a pound on the proviso that it can never be sold again. That's really good. Yeah. Um, Yasmin, uh, can you compete with Alex's saintly gift to the nation? God, I wish. Mine's far more. more. It's going to sound bad. I was going to say I would buy TikTok, um, mostly because that way you <laughs> wouldn't have to worry about data issues, Chinese government's influence. And, and I would ensure, of course, that everyone's TikTok resembled more or less my own 
for you page, which tends to be uh, puppies and cooking videos. Uh, so I'd, I'd get rid of all the unsavory stuff. And yeah, I'll, I'll leave like the, the music trends and stuff. Megan Trainer can have her, yeah, <laughs> yeah, her, her trend, that dance going on right now to promote her new song. Um, yeah, I mean, I just would buy because I feel like TikTok is one of the last social media apps that I truly, truly enjoy. And God forbid if some rogue billionaire bought it and just tried to destroy it, I'd be, I'd be pretty upset. So I'd safeguard that. Um, Michael, how would you spend your muskian billions? God. Um, Remember, you don't need to know anything about the thing that you're buying. <laughs> yeah. Musk is proven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go for it. Well, in that case, I'm going to buy up all the fossil fuel companies on Earth <laughs> um, and shut them down over the course of five years, turn them all into <laughs> renewable energy. Probably given the opportunity, you'd have to go for saving the world. Well, there you go. You have indeed been outdone. You saved Britain. <laughs> I know. Yasmin right? saved TikTok. You saved Britain. I know, Michael right? saved the world. I mean, that's just typical lefty bullshit. <laughs> just, trying, just trying to outdo me. You know, trying to make me out to be a bad socialist. Here. No, I think it's called it's called going last. <laughs> Now, the Labour left have been at a loose end since Keir Starmer assumed the leadership in 2020 and Jeremy Corbyn was suspended from the party. Young anti-austerity voters are stuck between a Labour party that doesn't like them very much and a group of alternatives with no electoral prospect. So what's next? We're here with Michael Chesham. Your book has a very optimistic title, um, but it describes a series of setbacks from the fizzling out of the grassroots horizontalist protest in the first half of the last decade to the failure of the Corbyn project. When does the optimism come from when you're when you're writing about these disappointments well i think um look the, the, the 2010s are the decade in which the left comes back to life they are the rebirth of political alternatives i mean i was born in 1989 and i grew up in a world where essentially nothing but the, the onward march of market economics seemed possible um you know any anybody calling themselves a socialist in mainstream politics was was largely laughed at and sort of sneered at and that all changed, and it changed in a way that nobody in the, the sort of mainstream commentariat expected to change. So I think there's a great deal of optimism to to be drawn out. I mean, first, um, you know, you know, first we had this explosive student movement that turned into an anti-austerity movement in the first half of the decade, and then we have the very sudden emergence of of of, of the left in the political mainstream after actually the defeat the anti-austerity movement. And it's true to say that a lot of those movements were defeated and that Corbynism ultimately was defeated. I think to an extent that's what being a, a left winger, or even if you prefer it, a progressive is like. Uh, you do get defeated a lot, you get knocked back a lot, but you you take ground and you, you push forward uh, your politics and your objectives as you go. And I think the underlying things that made Corbynism possible, that made Sanders possible, that made the new left across Europe possible, haven't gone away. You have a radicalised generation um, that um, is largely, um, you know, entirely opposed to neoliberal economics. And you've got a, you know, socialist and social democratic politics alive in the political mainstream. The problem is that because in in, in Britain, the Labour Party mediates the whole of progressive politics, uh, the left is effectively 90% of the time completely absent from the, the public debate. See, look, I get my optimism from the fact that all of those underlying processes have still gone on. Mm. Um, and the conditions for that, for a new movement to push forward uh, a new, another round of new left politics, and most of all, importantly, to learn from the mistakes and to learn the lessons of the last decade well, is very, very possible. Well, listen, because, you, you know, you, you, you lead towards looking to the future. Um the, the loudest narrative that I see on the left, particularly online, but, you know, in journalism as well, is that Labour, you know, almost won in 2017, perhaps it would have won if not for sabotage, collapsed in 2019 only because of Brexit. There is still a huge effort to vindicate Corbyn's leadership and a refighting of both 2017 and 2019, even now we're coming to the end of 2022. How much appetite is there, do you think, for the kind of self-criticism and lesson learning that you engage in in your book? Look, Corbynism was built under siege. And I think because of that, and also because of its own errors and its own mistakes, and the fact that 
you know, Corbynism became, I think, uh, a very centralised, top-down kind of politics. I'm, I'm very critical of that. So, I mean, you know, what happened to Momentum, for instance, where all of the internal democracy was shut down and it was turned from this messy social movement organisation into uh, an organisation that was just a top-down kind of yeah. Praetorian guard. I think that essentially what, what motivated a lot of people within uh, Corbynism and, and for many reasons why Corbynism <clears throat> failed was because it too closely resembled just a communal garden laborist project. Um, in the end, Corbynism was not a break from laborism. Because you talk to a lot of people who, who didn't, you know, candidly did not connect with labor before 2015, don't now. Now, one of the accusations um, leveled against other factions of the party against Corbynism was that a lot of these people weren't really labor and they just wanted to use the party uh, as a vehicle for their own project and that they did, rather than representing the true heart of labor, they were something else. And reading your book, I wondered whether that was partly true, that accusation was partly true. There were a lot of people that didn't actually like Labour much, but thought that that was the best way to achieve change at that moment in time. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I'm a Labour member and I, I think it's a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's a total nightmare. I, I'm going to remain in the walking, waking nightmare that is the Labour Party because I simply have to. Because I'd have first passed the post, it's impossible to have any electoral alternative to it. Mm. But I don't think, I, you know, I'm not going to make any pretenses about the fact that, you know, everybody in, in Corbynism represented the true heart of Labour. But I mean, is Tony Blair the true heart of Labour? Is, is Jeremy Corbyn the true heart of... I mean, like, what does this mean? Mm. Labour is this kind of very complex, composite amalgam of all of these different interests. And yeah, absolutely. People came into the Labour Party because they thought they could get something done. You know, we'd just gone through a series of explosive social movements. I mean, we cast around for desperately trying to find our reflection mirrored back at us somewhere in the political mainstream. Mm. And there was this crazy moment where Russell Brand becomes an overnight sensation because he goes on Newsnight and uses what, the word where revolution. Where is he now? <laughs> well, I mean, God knows, but he used the word revolution once. So it was something. Yeah. So, so it became this, you know, people joined the Green Party en masse in 2014. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, Corbynism is, is the product of those social movements. And I don't think we're, I'm not at all, I don't make any pretense about, um, did they come into the Labour Party because they wanted to take it over and do their thing with it? Absolutely. That's what everybody does. That's what the Labour Party is for. Um, there is no true heart of the Labour Party in that sense. One thing I'm torn on is that sometimes I look at a lot of uh, the, the sort of prominent voices on the left, many of which you interview uh, in your book, um, who just openly loathe Starmer. And sometimes I just think, well, have you just given up? And I'm not talking here about, there are obviously people like uh, you know, Paul Mason and inside the party, um, inside the parliament, Clive Lewis, you know, who are still sort of working to influence the party. Many others I feel like have given up. Then I look at, say, what's happening with selections at the moment and, uh, and, and what seems to be a very sort of centralized process, which excludes left-wing candidates. And then I think, well, even if they were more sort of amenable and they were, they were just thinking, well, look, how can we exert influence on the leadership, whether they would get anywhere? I mean, what, what do you think? Is there, a, is there the capacity for the left to sort of have a, a bridge to Starmer? Or has that been burnt down on, on both ends? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I just don't really see how you could build that bridge or use it. I think it burnt down and fell into the swamp a long time ago, that bridge. And it, you know, I mean, look, um, a large proportion of the people who voted for Corbyn as leader also voted for Starmer as leader. And they did so on the basis that Starmer promised to continue Jeremy Corbyn's domestic programme, defend freedom of movement, and because he was, um, you know, a huge Remainer, or claimed to be. And it's very difficult to construct an argument that Keir Starmer hasn't lied to like pretty directly to the whole of the to the whole of the Labour membership. And, uh, you know, there's a line of argument that says, you know, well, you know, you've got to lie to the Labour Party membership to get elected because then you've got to go to the country. And I just think that's just so dangerous. And I think, unfortunately, I think, that, and this is one of the great problems with the Labour Party, is that if the bureaucracy and the leadership decides to absolutely cut you out of everything, they can and they will. And that's that's more than just a war on the left. I think it's important to say this. What we're seeing here is a broader political method. 
It is grown-upism, political management that sees democracy itself, internal democracy itself, as the problem. You can't let party members decide things because if we let party members decide things, so the argument goes, they would choose unpopular policies and so on. And then this is just absolutely wrong. I mean, if the membership um, had been allowed to decide the Brexit policy of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, we would have had a soft Brexit, single market and free movement position from the autumn of 2017. Mm. Or we would have had a second mm. referendum position from the autumn of 2018. And that would have put us in a much better stead to win the 2019 can general I, election. Can I say something? So, um, cards on the table. I am someone who's politically very close to Corbyn. And so I voted for Corbyn the first time round, but was then bitterly disappointed by the style of campaigning that I saw, especially around the Brexit um, referendum. And so for me, the problem became this idea that um, leftism cannot be associated with professionalism, cannot be associated with a... Uh, smart targeting with slick presentation, that all of those things were markers of what you're calling grown-upism. But to me, that is as wrong-headed as the the opposite side of seeing, you know, something like the, the environmental protests as crusty and without merit simply because of the way they go about expressing themselves and the, the people they involve. And that's, that's personally what put me off. So the problem for me was when it became from left-wing politics became Corbynism. Yeah, and I think I think it's important not to base, um, as you say, it's important not to base this on kind of crude aesthetic judgments. When I talk about grown-upism, I don't mean uh, the act of wearing a suit, the act of being clever. What I what I mean is who has the power, like who is taking the decisions, and what do we think politics is for? And for me, Corbynism was an opportunity. And I think if you're on the left, most people think this is that the. That the, the politics is really about a transformative project, and, and what I mean by grown-upism is a political methodology that sees the direct opposite. That basically says we are a professional political class. We are taking the decisions. You little people may go door knocking for us. You may advise us, but we are we are setting the policy, and, and that's actually a, a trap. And it's a trap that successive Labour leaders have fallen into. Corbyn fell into it on Brexit. Ed Miliband fell into it on austerity. Had Labour Party members been allowed to decide our policy, mm. they would have they would have taken an anti-austerity position in, in, in before the before the twenty fifteen election. We wouldn't have had that catastrophe. The, there's this overriding sense, I think, within Starmer's Labour Party that the the, the, Starmer, the Starmer leadership had, which which is this this method, not just professional, but basically dictatorial, and that treats the party membership and the left, therefore, with just like total disdain. I want to end on a couple of practical questions. You call for a sort of more pluralistic, less centralised, even messy left. One problem I see in the left is that from anti-Semitism to to Ukraine, um, it seems that a minority, and this includes Corbyn and friends and allies, have the ability to discredit everyone else on stuff that is not popular. This is not the same as nationalization. The, the stop the war position on Ukraine is, is, is deeply unpopular. So say you get a uh, um, electoral reform, say there is a possibility, as you say, Labour must die, you know, Labour splits, you get a sort of socialist party. I mean, how messy and pluralistic can it be when you do have these people and they are a minority, but they are toxic when it comes to the to the broader movement? What what happens there? Well, I think that there is a big majority on the radical left in Britain that is pro free movement, was pro remain, was pro um, was pro second referendum, you know, supports Ukraine would agree with me that it is both true that the left has an anti-Semitism problem and true that that was weaponized against Corbyn. I, th- I think that one of the reasons why our bit of the radical left, you say the bit of the radical left maybe that was represented by groups like Another Europe is Possible, uh, was so marginalized both within Corbynism and within the anti-Brexit movement, was because we were weak in the institutions. And it is precisely the institutional politics of the Labour Party that has kept quite a lot of pretty 
you know, crap politics on things like borders and on things like Ukraine alive. And so I think very quickly you would see the emergence of not necessarily one, but multiple um, left parties. Um, you, of course, you would have the Greens in play. But nonetheless, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that, 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 you know, those who are saying things like it's NATO aggression that caused the war in Ukraine, I don't think that they would be a defining uh, feature of a new left party. And, and if they were, I think it's likely there would be multiple left parties. Right. I, I think it's an incredibly difficult question to answer because I think the debate that we are having on the left uh, about all of these questions and the debate that we're having about the left that we might be is created by the world that we currently have, which is all inside the Labour Party. On the outside, things would be very different indeed. And I think you would very quickly find that the left that believed in internal democracy, that was internationalist, uh, that was in favour of open borders, that had all of the radical economic policies of Corbynism and more, and that, you know, was, you know, broadly kind of libertarian-ish in its politics, would be a much bigger part of the new left Mm. outside of the Labour Party than we can ever be inside, um, because we are, you know, we, we don't run trade union bureaucracies, generally speaking. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting enough attention in Under the Radar. Uh, Yasmin, what have you got for us? Um, yeah, so I was most cheered by this news that came out this week, but six months um, after the Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla was killed while reporting in the West Bank, uh, presumably by an Israeli soldier, uh, the FBI has opened an investigation into her death. This is a really big deal. I made the case for the U.S. launching its own investigation into her death in June on the basis that there was precedence for this. Uh, The same thing was done in order to investigate the kidnapping and killing of the Wall Street Journal journalist Daniel Pearl in Pakistan. Israel has refused to cooperate with the inquiry, calling it a grave mistake. Um, But I'd say that it's long overdue um, and a chance for the U.S. to finally seek justice and accountability that Shireen and her family deserve. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of it. But it's nonetheless, uh, I think, at least a positive turn in very welcome. Absolutely. Alex. Andrew Bailey appeared before a Commons committee today. He is. Um, uh, the governor of the Bank of England to give his sort of yeah. view on what's going on at the moment. And he identified that uh, since 2019, um, the UK has suffered three adverse impacts, and they are A, the pandemic, B, the Ukraine war, and C, tightening of the labor market, which (laughs) remains somehow unidentified how that happened. And it just, it, it makes me like Hulk smash stuff, because I just don't understand how we can resolve these issues with people at the top. I mean, Bailey was handpicked by Johnson, because he was the most cheerful candidate about Brexit. How are we supposed to fix trade when we have people at the top simply unable to even acknowledge that Brexit had a fucking impact? Uh, Well, mine is also about denialism, but a different kind. Okay. Um, I think that uh, after the 2020 election, obviously Trump's uh, denial that he had lost, um, and he still does not think that he lost, you know, was um, was a, a dark sign of things to come. Obviously not great. But as we discussed recently, you know, Bolsonaro, who I think was predicted to go down the same path, did accept defeat to Lula. And all of the elect, pretty much all of the election denier candidates, or certainly the ones in like tight, tight races rather than very safe uh, red states, uh, lost. And haven't really, they've made some noises about, oh, you know, it takes too long to count them and do, oh, maybe it's something a bit, a bit weird, but it hasn't really become one of the big themes. And you would have expected, I think, that to become a very big theme that every Republican that lost yeah. would be making a big fuss about how the system is corrupt. And that dog hasn't really barked. Okay, depressing possibility, though. That's because the individual races in the midterms are less important than the 2024. And so keeping this narrative alive right, but- that they keep stealing elections from us focuses the danger on that. But the fact is that a lot of the people who were running for Secretary of State and Governor, where they would have had the power Mm. 
to mess around with yeah, the yeah, certification yeah. of lost and it's won't It's been have more that orderly than anyone had expected. Yeah. That's so, sure. you know, I always think on this podcast it's important to, 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 to uh, point out when things that we thought were going to get worse have, if not gone backwards, at least stopped yeah. <laughs> on the road to hell. Uh, Michael? I've got, you know, I didn't realise I could only pick one. I've got, I've got, um, I've got four. If I listen quickly. You've got to pick one. I've got to pick one. Oh, God. Um, go with your heart. Go with my heart. In which case, it's less an underreporting issue, but it's more, it's amazing, isn't it, how quickly things can drop out the news. Mm. And Manston was all over, uh, which is the, the place where refugees were being mm. detained, in, in illegal, unsanitary conditions. Really this kind of great reveal moment for the fact that Britain's border regime is just, like barbaric yeah. and, uh, and illegal, though, I mean, some of the greatest crimes are perfectly legal, but, you know, it was also happened to be illegal as well as horrific. Um, it was all over the news a week or two ago, um, and it's, it's just gone. I don't know. I think like a lot of migrants' rights campaigners, I was hoping that that would be a real kind of watershed moment. Hopefully it still can be, but, you know, um, it's, it is remarkable how it's just dropped out. Yeah. It's gone. It's as if it, it's as if it never happened. Well, hopefully some of the reporters on that beat are kind of persisting in that story and that more is going to come to light. Indeed. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you to Alex. Thank you. Yasmin. Thanks for having me. And our special guest, Michael Chesson. It's been great. Thank you. Now stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thank you to some of our generous supporters. Hello, and thanks from me to Simon Best, Ben... Beth Jones, Max Steiner, Neil Hawkins, Charles Partridge, Rock, Rhea McFadden, Catriona Gibb, and a name I'm particularly happy to see, John Alone. Greetings from me and many thanks to Robert O'Malley, Federico Valori, Lizzie Parsons, Katia G, Penny Smith, Paul Gregory, Henry Williams, Dorit Braun, James Lloyd, and Alistair Keith. And thanks for me to Michael Parker Bray, Ben Atkins, Lucas O'Dor, Max Gallion, Joe, David Drury, Craig Tullock, David Farkas, Rebecca Lewis, and Beth Neal. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? It was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Yasmin Sirhan. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieburn, and producers for Alex Reese and Jack Gerbert. Assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and oh god, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers. In last week's US midterms, it was pointed out that at 89, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley is older than the chocolate chip cookie and only five years younger than sliced bread. <laughs> Joe Biden is 79, Donald Trump, 76, outgoing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, 82, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, 71. Uh, Lula, the exciting new president of Brazil, is 77. Meanwhile, in the UK, the the average age in the House of Lords is 71. So should politicians continue to work years after most of us retire? Yes, I mean, when it's putting together these figures, this does seem to be primarily an American problem. There uh, have been since FDR term limits for presidents, but not for members of Congress. Isn't that just because they just did not expect people to live that long? (laughs) Like, why are there no limits? I have Hamilton in my head when I'm thinking about the the, the founders of of the U.S., but but I feel like all of those were particularly young white men, um, which is probably who they thought would be running for president uh, for time immemorial. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I suspect that's the reason, though there is certainly perhaps a case to be made. And that was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thank you for listening and see you next week.